title this morning is Rivers of Living Water. It's hard to go with anything else because that's what Jesus' message is. You'll remember, I hope, um, that this festival of booths has been going on for a week, right? This is the last day, the great day. There's some discussion as to whether this is the seventh day or perhaps the eighth day. Uh, scriptures only prescribe seven days, but tradition and history t- teaches us that um, there was also celebrations that carried over to the eighth day. And, and you can't blame them. When a party's good, you don't want it to stop, right? Um, that's the whole idea of the Festival of Booths, was to remember the faithfulness of God and to rejoice in the evidence of that, even in the, the, the feast that they're celebrating at the moment. But one of the things, of course, that Jesus picks up on in this kind of culmination of his message at the festival is this need for living water. And as you go back to the Pentateuch, go back to Exodus and and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, and you recount the ways that God provided for his people in a dry wilderness where there was no food, there was no hope, where they wondered every day, what are we going to eat, what are we going to drink? And God provided for them daily, um, that he did so in some miraculous ways. You can find a story where God turned some bitter water into sweet water that was refreshing. And so as Israel made a stop, they were able to refresh themselves by that stream. You can also find another story that's probably even more exciting, that at one point where they wondered where they were going to get their water, uh, Moses was commanded to strike a rock, and that from that rock would come Streams of living water. Pretty miraculous. And so these are the things that are going on in the minds of the people. I want to read to you from um, a commentary that kind of gives us a good overview of what's going on here. And um, just so that I don't miss anything, I'm going to read straight from it. This is from uh, the ESV Preach the Word commentary series, which has been really helpful for me. So the writer says, At the heart of the celebration was a daily rite, a rite we must understand in order to catch the sense of John 7. Rabbinical literature tells us that each morning, great multitudes would gather at the temple of Herod. They would come with a citrus fruit in their left hands, which was called an ethrog. The ethrog was a reminder of the land to which God had brought them and of the bountiful blessings he had for them. In their right hands, the people would carry a lulab, which was a combination of three trees, a palm tree, a willow, and a myrtle, emblematic of the stages of the ancestors' journey through the wilderness. Each morning, the people gathered together, and after the priest was sure everything was in order, he would hold out a golden pitcher, The crowds would then follow the priests to the pool of Siloam, which we saw about a couple chapters earlier. And they were chanting some of the great psalms and waving their lulabs in rhythm. As they approached the pool of Siloam, the priest would dip his pitcher into the water, and the people would recite some beautiful words from Isaiah 12, 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Then the crowds would march back to the temple, entering through the water gate to the blast of the priest's trumpets. The priest would then circle the altar once, ascend with an accompanying priest to the platform, and pour the water out. This was a daily event. So this imagery of water was not just something that they were thinking about in their minds as they recounted the word that they knew, their history, but also a a visual reminder was being done for them every morning during this feast. And so when Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast and says these words, It's not just a clever metaphor or kind of a nice way to say, I'd like to do something nice for you. He's actually presenting himself as the source of blessing that they've been celebrating for seven days. He is putting himself on a pedestal, in a humble way, of course, and declaring that from him, living water would would flow out and into the hearts of all who believe, all who would come to him and drink. 
And it's fascinating, too, the reversal that Jesus takes. Because if you remember from that description, the priests would pour the water over the altar. It would be poured out. No one would drink the water from the Pool of Siloam. And understandably, if you remember the Pool of Siloam, that obviously there's things going on in there, and it wasn't the freshest water. And so it's interesting that what Jesus does with that picture is he reverses it. The water isn't pulled, poured out on the altar. It's poured into the hearts of all who believe. It's set forth as an offer to drink, to satisfy, to quench the thirst of anyone who is, in fact, thirsty. Bruce Milne, another commentator and preacher, um, said the people looked forward to that coming day when God's spirit would be poured out at the coming of the kingdom of God. That that whole, fest, that whole feast was looking, also look, of course, looking back, but it was also looking forward to something even greater. That God would not just pour out water as they poured out on the altar, but he would pour out his spirit on all of his people. And John uh, points us to that. If you look again at verse 39, John writes, Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's a lot of theology in that one verse, isn't it? As far as what we understand about the Holy Spirit. And that the Holy Spirit was working. We, we know that pretty clearly. We've seen Jesus teaching on the Holy Spirit and that somebody can't even begin to believe in Christ unless the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates them, gives them life. Remember, he said at one point that the flesh profits nothing. It's only the Spirit that gives life. And so if, if anything that we try to do in our own power is useless, we have no hope but that the Spirit would come. So it's a little tricky because, again, John says... Those who believed in him were to receive, implying they hadn't yet received him. But that doesn't mean the Spirit wasn't working. Now, it's fascinating because what are the conditions? The Spirit was received by the people, in verse 39, because Jesus was glorified. When Jesus was glorified, rather. That is, after the cross, at the point of the ascension, when he floated back up to heaven and then, of course, sent his Holy Spirit to indwell his people. And so that's where we are today. We experience the regenerating work of the Spirit. But we also experience the indwelling work of the Spirit, flowing in us, giving us life, giving us all that we need, never running out, but then also flowing out of us because we are called to bear testimony to this new life that we have. Well, I want to back up again in considering now this message. I want you to look back at verse 37 again. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. This is kind of cool, too, because earlier in this chapter, it says that Jesus proclaimed. So there's, there's these points where Jesus goes from kind of off to the side sort of teaching to where he's, he's standing up a little bit higher. He's, he's presenting a message to all the people of the festival. And that's what's going on here. And it's kind of an interesting um, image to get because, again, you might expect other rabbis to be traveling to Jerusalem for the festival and in hopes that they might deliver their best sermon that they've come up with for that special week. And Jesus is taking the whole crowds to him. But the audience that Jesus speaks to that we should consider when John tells us that Jesus stood up and cried out was, was not just those who were wanting to hear from him, but those who didn't want to hear from him. Because, of course, that's the division that we see starting in verse 40 afterwards. Some people who didn't quite know what to do with Jesus. He cries out and he begins his message by saying, if anyone thirsts, it is a call to anyone, but it's not a call to everyone. 
probably don't imagine exclusivity in this call, do you? If anyone thirsts. That is a call to anyone who's thirsting, but not everyone. What's the qualifier? Who is it who Jesus is calling to come and drink from him? Anyone who actually thirsts. Now, in truth, we could take this in a couple ways. First of all, we could say everybody needs Jesus. So in one sense, everybody thirsts for him, right? And in another sense, there's, there's the realization of that in the heart of a person that says, I do need what he has to offer. And I may not even know what that is, but there's something about when I hear this guy speak, which the guards have said, you know, at the end of this passage, no one ever spoke like this man. There's something unique about him. I know that I need something from this guy. That's the people he's targeting with this primarily. But he's also, so there's a twofold message. Are you thirsty? Come and drink these living waters. And in addition to that, he's talking to people who are not thirsty, who aren't paying attention, who are maybe even plotting to kill him. And he's saying, are you thirsty? The implication of the answer that they should be giving is, yes, I, I am. I don't even know it. Those who thirst for living water will find it in Christ the one on whom the Spirit was working, revealing that true thirst in them to begin with. You know, it's been so sad these past couple weeks watching news footage of Ukraine and Russia, right? Um, I don't know about you, but again, this is one of those things where I'm like, I can only take so much before I have to turn it off and, and do something else because you feel so powerless in so many ways, uh, and it also feels so hopeless, right? When we think about things theologically, it's very easy for us to think like, well, you know, there's going to be wars, there's going to be death and destruction. These are signs that the end is coming. That's very true. The difficult thing for Christians in all of our Christian life is that we're called to hold opposing thoughts sometimes in equal standings in our minds. That is to say that we should look at this and say, yeah, the only thing that's going to fix the Russia-Ukraine issue is Jesus. And that's becoming more clear every day, isn't it? It's like we're not getting anywhere. Again, my hope is to wake up in the morning and turn my phone on and see the war's over. It's not. It's getting worse. Oh, good, they're having peace talks. Great. Maybe something will come out of that. No. There seems to be no hope in some of these situations. And so we are right in saying... You know, even if this ends in some way, the, the true conflict of the human soul is not going to end until Jesus returns in fullness, with the fullness of his kingdom and takes back everything that's his. That is our ultimate hope. And yet at the same time, we see a compassionate Jesus here. Because this, is the, this, <laughs> this preacher has been preaching for a few days at this point. And every time that we've looked at the Gospel of John chapter 7, we've seen opposition to him. And we've seen people, even before opposition, just kind of scratching their heads and then saying things they thought were smart, like, well, doesn't the scripture say this? So maybe we don't have to worry about Jesus here. I mean, if I were in Jesus' shoes, I'd be like, what am I even doing here? What is the point? Forget these guys. Let's call down fire from heaven and then leave them to be. I'm sure it'd be tempting. I'm sure that Jesus had perhaps even... Uh, a voice of maybe a disciple or somebody around just saying, what are you doing? I mean, people just don't know what to do with you here. Why don't we go back to where things were really good in John chapter 6 and, you know, do another feeding of the 5,000 kind of thing and, and maybe get it right this time, Jesus. Don't send everybody away by your weird teaching. 
This is exactly what Jesus wants to do. And in this little sermon that he gives us about our need, our thirstiness for him, he's presenting himself as a kind, compassionate, and patient savior, isn't he? Because he's talking to people who just don't know what to do with him. And yet he's the king of the universe. He wants to give them his Holy Spirit to live inside of them and to regenerate them and to flow in and out of their lives. And they're sitting there scratching their heads going, I don't know about you. Mm, Let me think about it a little bit more. And of course, there are those that are immediately resorting to violence as well. Ultimately, we're not going to find any other source to bring peace and righteousness to this world but Jesus. And that's part of what he said here that is true for us today as we look, again, at the global situation of the world and at the situation of your own life. Jesus is the only fountain from which we can find living waters. And you all know that, don't you? Because you're all good Christians. But do we ever act as though we don't know that? Does our life consistently show that Christ is the only true fountain of living water in my life? Or do I sometimes neglect my thirstiness for what I truly need and look somewhere else? Jesus is the exclusive one that we should be coming to. And he says that here again. Look again in his message. Come to me, whoever believes in me. He's not saying, believe my message only. He's not saying, um, discover the truth of my teaching or discover the skill of me as a teacher. But he's talking about, at the place of your heart, what are you going to do with me as a person? There's there's no room, when you look at God's word, there's no room to land at, at a perspective that says that Jesus never proclaimed that he was equal with God. Because no one's allowed to say these kinds of things. No good Jew would say, come to me and drink for living water, unless they were the true Lord or a liar or a lunatic. Now, it's interesting, he says, as the scripture says here, and uh, commentators all uh, agree that largely we can't find a passage that exactly says what Jesus is saying, but that this is perhaps more of the overflow of the summary of the message of the Old Testament. This is what God wants to do in the lives of people. He does not simply want to just clean them on the outside. He wants the renewal of the heart to happen. And that can only happen if the living water is drunk, is consumed. So a passage that perhaps you remember from earlier the service. Isaiah 55 is kind of what we kicked off this service with. Listen to this again. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. In the midst of the story that God is telling us in the Old Testament and fulfilling in the New Testament, There is repeated failure of God's people to rely wholly on him. They turn left and right every chance they can, and yet God's love never stops overflowing towards them, even in their faithlessness. So let's ask ourselves this morning, because what we need to do with this passage is check the thirst of our hearts. 
Do I see Jesus as the true satisfier of my thirst? And what are the rivals to that? I mean, basically, we're taking Jesus' message and having a conversation about idolatry. Because he proclaims himself as such, the one to whom we might receive living water, and that that might flow out of us, and that there is no other source but him. And yet you still have to go out and live your life every day. You still have to fix things in your house. You still have to fix your car a hundred times. You still have to take care of your kids. You still have to deal with political issues. You still have to buy gas today. I'm kind of terrified about what that's going to look like tomorrow. We still have to do all these kinds of things. And as we go to each task, it is so easy to satisfy ourselves with the results and say, oh, I found gas for under $3. That's great. Now my day is going to be really good. What if you find gas for $6.12 tomorrow? Is Christ still going to be your, the satisfier of your thirst at the place of your heart? It's really interesting when, you know, when Jesus and any of really the biblical authors talk about the heart, they're not talking about the thing that pumps blood through your body. They're talking more about your core. This idea of, of, of the belly is probably a better translation. If you have the King James Version, I think it says belly. Anybody have the KJV this morning? You don't have to raise your hand if you, if you want to stay hidden. It's okay if you have the KJV. Um, but I think, it's, I think it translates as belly. Other translations do. Um, and, and what does that really matter so much? It's just an interesting point to make that when Jesus is talking about the heart, he's talking about the center, the core of who you are, the most defining thing about you. When you're in Christ, the most defining thing about you is the presence of his Holy Spirit in your life, flowing in and flowing out and showing the world his great grace. And yet our hearts so quickly and so easily reject the Lord of living waters for anything else sometimes, right? Any other kind of thing that we think will satisfy, that we can spend our money on, that we can give our time to, or our devotion. It's interesting, you know, when you're hiking, I think the rule is particularly if you're lost, but all the time when you're hiking, if you need to drink something, what kind of water are you supposed to drink? Does anybody know? Was that? Clean water, Clean water yes. <laughs> right. But you want to drink living water. You want to drink water that moves, right? Like from a stream rather than just water that's been sitting for who knows how long. Hence the cleanness, then we'll know, right? There, or at least there's a better chance. I guess you want to look upstream before you take a drink. But living water is what you need, water that moves. And that's what Jesus is talking about. It's not just water that sits in a cup, but it's, it's turning the fire hose on and overflowing without any end and yet what we look to is often that little puddle and we say hey look there's water let's take a drink or you know another example would be that that idea of in a shipwreck in the ocean you're supposed to drink the salt water no it's only going to make you thirstier right and of course what christ offers us is the opposite of that and yet just as the testimony of the old testament is that god wants to overflow with his love, with his living waters in the lives of his people. The Old Testament also tells us, particularly in Jeremiah 2.13, which I, I don't know how I could kind of do this sermon without this passage because it just shows our problem so clearly. Um, I'd even encourage you to look up Jeremiah 2.13 so that you can look at it with me while I read it. Jeremiah 2.13. Give you a moment to get there. It's just a short verse, but maybe helpful for us this morning to consider it too. This is Jeremiah delivering the message of God to the people 
of God in regards to their sin, in regards to the exile that they face. It reads, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, one, the fountain of living waters, and two, they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Rather than going to the fountain of living water, that has a never-ending supply of everything that we need for life and godliness. God's people, Jeremiah tells us, have decided to make themselves their own cisterns, their own containers for water, to pour that water in, and yet that cistern cannot even hold the water. It doesn't satisfy. But you see the two parts of this evil, right? The first one being that there's a forsaking of God. There's a turning away from him and turning to our own devices, our own means of satisfaction. The last two weeks that we've been in John 7, notice that our problem first in the first 24 verses was that when we prioritize our own will and glory over God's will and glory, our judgment gets completely thrown off. We cannot tell right from wrong because the only thing we're consumed by is our own glory, our own will, what we want, and how we might make our lives even better. And then from verses 25 to 36, we saw that relying on what we know, our own intellect, our own devices, our own way of calculating things and understanding things, if we rely wholly on our intelligence, we completely stop seeking Jesus entirely. And then this week, it comes to the place of our hearts. Our hearts are rejecting the Lord of living waters and trying to build something for ourselves. The, the very core of who we are is not about God, but it is about self. Consider that from the two groups that we see here. We won't spend a whole lot of time on these because it's been the same thing every week, hasn't it? This response of the crowds and the Pharisees or the teachers. First of all, consider the rabbis and the Pharisees who were there vying for leadership, who were wanting people to follow them and make much of themselves. That was their broken cistern that they were building. I am a Pharisee. This is uh, the thing into which I will pour my living water and be satisfied. And people will see me for how great I really am. My glory will be evident. And then my will will be done. And I'll be living my best life now. Isn't it funny? Have you noticed that people have been using that phrase in the positive? Talking about their best life now. When that's been a book that was written like so many years ago. And in the Christian world, it's kind of just been like a joke, like, oh, your best life now. And now people are actually using it as a hashtag to say, hey, I am living my best life now. It's kind of ironic. Maybe you haven't noticed that, but I have. <laughs> anyway, the rabbis and the Pharisees are doing just that. And then consider the crowds here uh, at the beginning of verse 40, that is. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. You know, referring back to what Moses has said, that the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me. To him you should listen. And so the people are saying, hey, at this point, he's got to be the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the, the descendant of David. They're pointing to what Moses said. Another group is pointing to what David said. And, and truly, the thing that will keep them from understanding who Christ is, is if they're stuck on Moses or David and not actually deal with the person of Jesus Christ. Because then someone else comes in and says, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. And this is the result of Jesus' teaching. Division happens. And he even said this. You know, I, I didn't come to bring priests. I, I came to bring a sword. I'm going to divide even families when it comes to my teaching. And he shows that here in the crowds. 
these crowds and these teachers who have come either aware of their thirst and their need for living water or ignoring it to the best that they can are coming to a person who says, come to me and drink living water. So let's ask ourselves again, do you come thirsty for living water today? And I don't mean just to church, but do you come into this day aware of your need for Jesus? Aware of your need for fresh new mercy, fresh new living water to satisfy all your needs? Or how how can we tell if that's not really going on? Or is my mind so preoccupied with the tasks of the day, the challenges of the day, that I miss the provision for the day? That I miss that Jesus is very much still here in my life and that his spirit is not just, you know, the trickling faucet, but an overflowing river of living water. And that what Jesus is calling us to do is come and just take a drink. Now, it's, it's always fun. We, at home, we read uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. We read it all the way through, and then we pick it up and start it again. And so, you know, the hope is that a lot of these stories are getting ingrained into the minds of our children, and, and they're really liking it, of course. Um, but we come to the last page, and at the last page, there's almost a sort of gospel invitation. And at one of the sentences says that uh, Jesus is offering himself to anyone who will just reach out and take the free gift. And so we're talking to Nora and Lucy about this. And, Nora, do you want to reach out and take this free gift from Jesus? And she looks at me and says, no. I'm like, okay. Like, are you just so aware of your own depravity that you think, no, I know in my sin I don't really want Jesus. I want something else. No, that's probably not what's going on. So I'm like, what, what do you think? Why? You just have to take it. It's just a gift. She's like, I'm, I'm not taking anything from God. No way. And Lucy chimes in, yeah, me too. I'm not taking anything. I'm not going to take anything. And then they keep saying take and take and take. And I'm like, oh, taking. I mean, what is it that we tell our kids so much? Stop taking this. Don't take that. Take this. Don't take that. It's like a bad word for a five-year-old or a two-year-old. Don't take something. And, and perhaps, though we, we might understand what Jesus is doing here, that he's not asking us to steal something from him we may still have a problem with actually taking what he has to offer us. We may have a problem at the point of pride that says, I don't want to rely on anyone besides myself. Or I want to make sure that my testimony of my own goodness and my own accomplishment is preserved and that people don't see how much I really need Jesus. Maybe we have other reasons for not taking the grace that's offered to us in Christ. But there's no other way to be right with God. There's no other way to live the life of a believer except for taking a drink from Christ. In contrast, if we choose to ignore our true thirst, what kind of results come from that? I I was reading uh, J.C. Ryle again this week, a preacher from the 1800s, and he gave this long list of, of the results of ignoring our true thirst for Christ. And a couple of the things that he put in there were anxiety over sin and the fear of death. Do you ever have a moment where you think, I have not been drinking from Christ so much as drinking from the world, and I'm worried about the state of my soul in regards to my sin? Or I'm even worried about what's going to happen at the point of death? I know that I'm talking to people who believe in Jesus and who proclaim a testimony of him, but you can still have those moments when you're truly thirsty. When, when the Spirit so works on your heart to say, hey, listen, if you are listening, then I'm here, I'm present, I'm, I'm giving you life, 
But you also need to be keenly aware of where it brought you from. If you would choose to continue along this path, there would be less and less reason to be assured that you're truly in Christ. Particularly, you know, in that moment of, of anxiety over sin, of really self-examination, just kind of being a priority in our lives to the point where we say, wow, I, I need to really return to Christ. If, that's, if there's ever a, a degree into which we can return to Christ. We feel our need more keenly, perhaps. But I think there's something even worse than anxiety over sin or fear of death, and I think that's just apathy. I think that if we consider our thirst and we consider like, ah, uh, yeah, I know I haven't read my Bible, I haven't been to church, I haven't prayed, I haven't been uh, fellowshipping with other believers, I haven't prayed, I haven't done this, I haven't whatever. And then to kind of say, yeah, but it's all right. I mean, God understands. It's not a big deal if I don't develop my relationship with Christ. I think that could be perhaps the worst result of our ignoring our thirst in Christ, thirst for Christ. And that in doing that, we turn to alternative fountains that offer a numbing to the true need that we have. And that perhaps if you're in that place where, where you're sort of numb to your need for Christ, my hope would be that in reading these verses, you would kind of have the shock of remembering your need for Jesus. Do you ever have one of those days where you realize maybe it's in the late afternoon or even into the evening and you go, I don't think I've had any water today. And you go, you know what? I'm supposed to drink, you know, something like 100 glasses of water every day. I might as well at least have one. And you take that drink of water and you think, okay, just a quick sip. And you go, whoa, your eyes are open. Oh, my goodness, I really needed this. Do you know that feeling? That's perhaps a place that we need to consider coming to as we consider this passage. There's a great passage in Proverbs 10, 11. King Solomon says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. That's what Jesus is. But the mouth of the wicked conceal violence. And that violence we see in this passage, the, the Pharisees, they're no longer just apathetic to Jesus. They've gone beyond that to the point of where they want to end his life. They want to bring violence um, in response to this compassionate welcome. And so that's why they sent the officers to go and arrest the man, why they were so upset I said, why didn't you bring him? What's wrong with you? It may not be immediately obvious in our own hearts. Uh, we probably don't wake up on our worst days and think, I just really want to hurt Jesus. I really want to push him away or something like that. When we become so consumed with our sin, the Bible tells us in Galatians that we can actually quench the spirit of God, that we can, we can grieve his spirit because the Holy Spirit is a person. It's the it's the personal relationship that we have with God is found in our relationship to the Holy Spirit. And our sin does that. Our, our choosing other things over Christ again and again and again drowns out the voice of the Spirit. Not to say that the Spirit's so weak that he can't speak louder than the things in the world around us. But there is the responsibility of the believer to listen to the Spirit. I mean, we all see this experientially. Week by week, when we choose not to come to the word, when we choose not to come to prayer. We still try to find other fountains to distract us because our hearts, at the root of them, apart from Christ, are opposed to Jesus, opposed to his good news. And that is why he calls us to drink, to have that refreshing, that awakening to, oh my goodness, I haven't had water all day. I need more than just this cup. Fill me up again. I need more, I need more, I need more. 
Because drinking of Christ is to drink of the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness. Paul tells us that in the New Testament. He says that that rock was Christ. That rock that was opposed, even symbolically, by Moses' staff. You know, the first time Moses was commanded to hit the rock, that was the command. God told him, hey, strike the rock and out will come water, and then the people will drink. Well, the second time that Moses looks to God and says, what am I supposed to do with them? They're complaining about being thirsty again. God says, do what to the rock? Do you remember? Speak to it. What does Moses do? He goes over to the people and goes over to the rock, and he says, you rebels, when are you going to stop bothering me? And he strikes the rock again. God responds and says, guess what? No promised land for you, Moses. You struck the rock. And again, Paul tells us, Why that was so significant is because that rock was Christ. Not literally, but a picture of Christ. And a picture of our rejection of his grace, of the opposition that comes against him in the place of the hearts of those who were called to drink from the living waters. Moses struck the rock in anger. And Jesus' message could have been like Moses' punishment to the people. Instead of saying, if anyone thirsts, he could have said, you know what? You guys are all going to hell and that's the end of it. I'm done. You're not listening to me. How long have I been preaching? How long am I going to put up with you? His compassion wins the day. His mission and his message don't change just because he had a response that he didn't deserve from the people who were sitting there scratching their heads instead of falling on their faces to worship him. Even to the opposition of those who were seeking to end his life. He was steadfast because he knew they were thirsty, and so he knows your heart as well is thirsty this morning. However well we admit it or however we respond to that thirst, Christ continues to hold out the cup and say, drink of me. It's fascinating. There's this two little bright spots at the end of this passage in the crowds, and one is these officers. The Pharisees said, why haven't you brought him? And the officer says, no one ever spoke like this man. You might read that at first and just say, well, well, hey, he's a really good speaker. That's, that must be really cool. It's nice to hear good speakers, blah, blah, blah. Oh, this is a claim that Jesus is not like any other man. And if he's not like any other man, he could only be divine. No one ever spoke like this man. And so we trust that there's no opposition that can disrupt the divine timetable. That Jesus' life, even when at this point it seemed like it could have been over, it wasn't. Because God sovereignly preserved the ministry of his son for so long. And in that preservation, the purpose is made clear. He was calling people in his compassion to come to him and to drink living waters. And so if we can trust Jesus to be so steadfast to his mission, and we can trust the Father to be so securing in his timetable, and his timeline, his plan to be so perfectly preserved, then we can trust Christ in any circumstances we find ourselves to satisfy us, to quench our deep thirst. Because no one ever spoke like this man. And the testimony of every believer who has found sanctuary in Christ is just that. There is no one like Jesus. And because of what Jesus did at the cross, because he became the priest of his own people, who, like that priest at the, at, at the end of the ritual during the Feast of Booths, would pour the water onto the altar. Jesus poured the, wa- the living water onto the altar. He poured his own life onto the altar in our place to pay for our sin. And out of that, the Spirit is given effectively to regenerate all those whom he died for. 
through Jesus' ministry. As he calls people, the Spirit comes and works effectively in our hearts to awaken us, to give us new life. And then after Jesus' glorification, the Spirit is given fully to his people. There's no, no withholding of the Spirit on God's part. You know, we, we just sang a song about asking for the Holy Spirit to come. And, and it's not a matter of us convincing God to send him. It's a matter of our own hearts having room enough for him. So when you sang that song, I hope that at the place of your heart, you were saying, Lord, I'm ready to get rid of these broken cisterns that hold no water, these other idols in my hearts. I want to leave all the space I possibly can so that I can have that living water flowing in me and out of me constantly because of what Christ did at the cross. This is yours, believer. This is foundational to your identity, the thing that sets you apart from the whole world around you that doesn't know Jesus. You are those who stand as the ones at the end of the day who took that drink of water and realized, oh, this is what I needed more than anything, and I need more of it, more of Jesus, more of his Spirit's presence and guiding and leading and power in my own life. Did you notice Nicodemus shows up again in this passage at the end? It's pretty cool, especially because this is right after, so in verse 49, sorry, verse 48, some of the teachers say, have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? I almost wonder if Nicodemus' ears didn't perk up when he heard that. And he was like, all right, I'm finally going to say something. Here we go. He said, this crowd is a curse. They don't know the law. They're idiots. They have no idea what they're talking about. We know what we're talking about. All those people who are following Jesus are crazy. And Nicodemus stands up and says, I have something to say. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing, learning what he does? Is this a profession of faith from Nicodemus's heart? Is this an overflowing of living water? Does he say, I believe in Jesus, why can't you? He doesn't exactly say that. He's on some step of this journey to confession of faith in Christ, and we'll see the culmination of that towards the end of the Gospel of John. You might already know what it is, but I don't want to spoil it if you don't know. Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Asking him questions, seeking to understand if the things that he's saying and the things that he's doing are actually true, if they're trustworthy. This is indeed what we all need to do as well, to give him our ear today, to drink of his life by receiving his grace, receiving his forgiveness. That if you have doubts in your hearts that, that, you know, I've done this Jesus thing for so long and I just don't seem to get the difference. The answer is not to wander further away from him, but to walk deeper into the life of Christ, drinking from that living water and letting the work of the Spirit flow out of your life. Because the Spirit, the living water, continues to flow in the believer's life, quenching every thirst by his power, but he is also meant to flow out of every believer as well. Because that's what Jesus says here. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I spent some time with the kids in Sunday school this morning, and I asked them a silly question. Do you see in other Christians' lives just rivers of living water coming out of their hearts every day? That'd be something to see, wouldn't it? It's not something that we see exactly. This is, of course, a spiritual reality. But the evidences are there. If you know the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, then you know the work of the Spirit. As he taught us in John 3, we don't see where he's coming or where he's going, but we feel the effects. It's like the wind. 
and we're born of him, of water and of the spirit, John 3, 5 tells us. He tells us that the spirit is sovereign. He's not subordinate. We can't command the wind to go one way or another. The spirit does what he wishes. He does the will of the father. He glorifies Christ. We saw also in John 3, 34, John the Baptist told us that the spirit is given without any limit. It's not as though God looks at certain believers and says, you get 20% spirit, you get 30% spirit, you get 10%, and you, you only get five because, oh my goodness. No, he is ready to pour his spirit out and in and through the hearts of all his believers if they'll repent and humble themselves. And the spirit empowers true worship because we cannot worship except for in spirit and in truth. And perhaps a great reminder from John six sixty three that we learned recently is that as the flesh can do nothing, cannot produce anything of its own, only the spirit can do that. The spirit stands in powerful contrast to our own abilities. You cannot live the Christian life on your own. You cannot live the Christian life on your own power. You cannot proclaim the Christian message on your own power or on your own either. The spirit of God is at work globally today, but he's also at work individually even in tragedy and in war and then in the challenges of life that you face, he's bringing true and real refuge, real sanctuary to his people. So won't the Holy Spirit, if he's overflowing in your life, won't he equip you to pour into the lives of others? Why wouldn't he? In those moments where we think, well, I don't know if I have enough even for myself. Would not God in his generosity and what he's shown us at the cross of Jesus Christ and not even sparing his own son, would he not also pour out his spirit on his people so that the message of Christ might go forth for the glory of Christ? It's not by accident that John said that the spirit was not given until after Jesus was glorified. The glory of Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit are one and the same. They're not to glory ourselves. They're not to wow people with signs and wonders to win people over by petty things like that, but rather to show the fruit of a changed life, the true effect of receiving the gospel of Jesus day by day. May we, as his church, do so. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, we thank you this morning that you've given us your spirit without measure, overflowing like a river of living water in our hearts. Lord, many of us do not sense that this morning. That's not a judgment, that's just the reality Many of us are worn down by the things of the world and the places that we look for hope just wear us down even more. At the place of our hearts, we all have some cistern that we're building, trying to hold water, trying to retain something of this life apart from you. Would you smash these cisterns in our hearts? Would you overflow with your Holy Spirit? And we might walk in obedience to the message that you've given us that we might walk in the joy of our salvation that the Holy Spirit applies to our hearts, that you might grow us day by day more into the image of Christ for our joy and his glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.